You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, being your be- very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics, and today is no exception. I don't know how many times I've seen this kind of thing happen, where you go and you talk about the Gospels and how well they're handed down, and someone asks a question immediately, where, don't you think if it was so important, someone would have written it down immediately? To us, that seems like a good question. Maybe it isn't. But even still, after it's written down, these are written down so much later, 30 years later, at least by most of even liberal reckoning, 40 years, maybe even some, in some cases for Mark. But memories change, don't they? And haven't we all played that telephone game when we were in elementary school and had so much fun with how much the message got changed? How can we trust that these traditions, these teachings about Jesus, were handed down accurately? To discuss those, I've brought on Dr. Robert McIver. Professor McIver, Ph.D., has taught biblical studies at Avondale University College, Kronenberg, NSW, Australia, since 1988. Before coming to Avondale, Robert had taught mathematics at secondary and tertiary levels, before changing his career to work as a church pastor. He holds a doctorate in Biblical Studies and Archaeology from Andrews University and has published 10 books including Memory, Jesus, and Synoptic Gospels, and Jesus in Four Dimensions, as well as articles in academic and popular journals. He is married to Susan, has two daughters and two grandsons. So, Dr. McIver, welcome to the show. Yeah, well, thank you. Now, if my audience doesn't know much about you, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing? Well, um, yes, I, uh, I started life as a uh, mathematics teacher, but discovered a real interest in the Gospels and in ministry. Um, I, I moved to ministry, and in my studies, I discovered that I really did enjoy uh, academic studies. So uh, I was able to pursue that, ended up at Avondale, um, and... Uh, Yes. Do you want to know, yeah, what else would you like to hear? Whatever you think is relevant. Uh, about myself? Sure. Yeah, okay. Um, well, I I guess I got into uh, memory studies by accident. I was working on my PhD uh, comparing uh, the parallels between Matthew and the other Gospels. And... As I was working, I discovered there was a pattern, uh, a a different pattern in some parallels. There was long sequences of verbatim words. In another parallels, you had uh, a reasonably high common uh, percentage of common vocabulary, but you didn't have the long sequences. 
And I realized pretty quickly that this, I, I think the difference is best explained by one being memory, uh, one process relying on memory and one process relying on copying. So that was the initial insight. Uh, and I discovered I was trying to share that insight in an academic world, which was pretty much convinced that the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke were related by some form of copying rather than some form of memory exercise. Mm -hmm. So I pursued that for a number of years. And then um, I had some research leave. And so I started thinking through this process. And I said, well, there's an, a, a step that happens before that, which is um, Jesus shared his teachings with his uh, disciples. They remembered it for some time before writing it down. So I've been spending a little bit of time thinking about that time period as well. So um, that pretty much is a very brief explanation of how I've ended up where I am and, and studying what I do. Now, when you said that they, you're, it's usually seemed like there was some sort of copying going on between the Gospels instead of memory, did you have in mind something like Q when you said that? Oh, well, there are two dominant theories about how the Gospels came about. Uh, one is that uh, Mark was written first and that Matthew and Luke both copied from Mark. And there is some um, material that's common between Matthew and Luke. In fact, sometimes it's very closely related. Some of the, most of the verbatim uh, parallels that I was talking about are in the parallels between Matthew and Luke. And so the explanation that gained favour for many years was that um, there was another document called Q circulating, uh, mainly consisting of sayings of Jesus, and Matthew and Luke independently used Q as the source of um, much of their Gospels, along with Mark. Now, that, that remained dominant for a long time. Um, there have always been other ideas out there. My kind of idea that orality was a bigger part has always been a minority opinion. But in, um, well, it's hard to call it recent years, but in the last half of the, 20, well, last third of the 20th century, and even to this day, there is a strong group of academics that say, well, no, you've got it all wrong. Uh, the Gospels did copy from each other, but the first Gospel that was written was Matthew and that um, Luke copied from Matthew, as did Mark. And Mark, in fact, was written last, and he was sitting in Rome. Uh, he had Matthew, which is a Jewish-Christian uh, gospel, and Luke, which is the Gentile gospel. And what he did is he uh, took the bits where they had common uh, material that were in the same order and discarded the bits where they were out of order, and that, that way discarded most of the Q material. So that uh, was m uh, made famous initially by a gentleman called Jacob Griesbach, mm -hmm. a German, uh, but in more recent times uh, it was William Farmer. They pretty much single-handedly revived this and convinced a significant number of New Testament scholars that this is the way to go. Mm -hmm. Now, both of these, these are the these are the two main ideas out there to explain gospel origins. Both of them rely on the fact that the gospels copied from each other. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I find this interesting because we've had <clears throat> some scholars on here who have been skeptical of Q. Uh, Mark Goodacre has been on here before yep. who wrote, wrote the, the case sure. against Q. And 
I was really surprised interviewing Richard Balcom one time when he said he's skeptical of Q as well. That's true. They both mm-hmm. said so in writing. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly now, Mark. Now, your thing, though, is that you say everyone is leaving out memory in all of this, right? Yeah. Well, I, as I say, um, I was surprised to find that I still thought there was some copying going on. That's the verbatim parallels. Mm-hmm. And as I say, mm-hmm. most of them is the so-called Q tradition. So... Um, it wouldn't surprise me if there was such a document floating out there. It, it, it seems strange to argue that, but I think memory uh, is a better explanation of the most gospel parallels. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you do the, um, the statistics, and I've just published a book on that called Verbatim and Just Parallels Between the Gospels, mm-hmm. Coded Greek Syntax and Selected Statistics, uh, that is available through Amazon. Um, In those, I actually outline the statistics. So I I track the parallels with long verbatim sequences right down to parallels where there are no common words at all. And the most common uh, number is is quite small, right? If you look at the um, average kind of parallel, they're clearly talking about the same event, they're using some of the same vocabulary, but they only use phrases in common. And that's typical of the kind of parallels that we discover in the psychology literature of memory that is uh, material that's related, uh, re- that's reproduced uh, while relying on memory. So I would say memory, uh, relying on a memory of an agreed oral tradition is a better explanation of the parallels between uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I was just looking at verbatim and just parallels between the Gospels. That's what you referred to, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for anyone interested right now, it looks like that it is on Amazon. It's sixteen eighteen. for anyone interested. I might try and pick that up sometime. That's where myself. <laughs> no. You've done very well picking that up live. <laughs> uh, that's what I do as a researcher here. Now, yeah. you know, you, um, something that did surprise me about memory was you said it matches our own psychological studies, but I, I know from doc- some conversations we've had with Dr. Evans, who's been on the show before, Craig Evans, that in the past, yes, there were, of course, individuals who had individualistic memories, but there was also collectivist memory. So if we talk about yeah. studies today, aren't we... Could we be making a false assumption that memory back then is just like it is today? Oh, okay. Well, look, there's uh, several elements in in what you've been talking about. Mm -hmm. Uh, First of all, let's begin with where memory is that different. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is perfectly possible that they were, but um, it seems unlikely, right? Mm -hmm. Um, 2,000-some years is a relatively short period of time for the brain to uh, to change that dramatically. Mm-hmm. Uh, brains are fairly, uh, how do I say this? There's a certain amount of flexibility in what brains, human brains can and cannot have. But if you have 
too much, and it's not that much. Uh, you don't actually have a viable human. So uh, the human <clears throat> brain is a, a very complex mechanism, and it's quite similar. It can be trained, and it is true that using memory techniques, you can expand your mm -hmm. ability to remember things. And the suspicion is, in a neural culture, people are so much more reliant on memory that their memories were of past events would be uh, much more accurate than mm. a modern person's who is relying on written records. But if you look at some of the research that's been done in uh, modern oral cultures, mm -hmm. uh, you, you discover that, in fact, the human memory is pretty consistent. So um, what... what what sounds the same when you actually record it and analyze it has a tiny variance in it. And, uh, and uh, the oral culture uh, is quite malleable. Uh, there's some examples of that. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the uh, argument I say that uh, means that we can look at the characteristics of human memory uh, using experiments today. Mm -hmm. and then assume that pretty much that is the qualities and the characteristics of human memory that was available to Jesus and his disciples. So that's, that's the first point. Mm -hmm. The second point you raise is the issue of collective memory, and this is a very important issue. Yes. Um, but collective memory is based on individual memory. So let, let me begin with how good is an individual's memory, and then, then perhaps we can get to talk about collective memories in the Gospels. Mm -hmm. Now, do you mean an so, individual's memory today or back then? Oh, well, the only, only memories we can study are uh, contemporary memories. Okay. Uh, there's a, in my book, uh, Memory, Jesus, and the Snopter Gospels, I, I have in chapter one, a very a report of a very interesting article that was published in a psychological uh, journal. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, called The Gunshot Robbery in Burnaby, Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a fascinating story. Uh, the, a store owner found himself being robbed at, at uh, gunpoint. He owned a gun shop in uh, this place in Vancouver. And uh, the, the people that were robbing him tied him up. Now, he struggled to get free, and he was able to fr free himself quite quickly. And he ran outside the store. He'd, he'd armed himself in the meantime. And the, he thought, well, he might be able to see the car as the robber was driving away. It turns out the robber was still outside loading his uh, stolen uh, weapons, the weapons he had stolen, into the car, and there was a shootout. Now, the uh, gun shop owner ended up killing the perpetrator. Now, the uh, police investigated, they uh, examined, they found 21 eyewitnesses to the event, uh, and then in the end, they decided not to prosecute. So, uh, they were there were a couple of uh, researchers mm -hmm. who were able to uh, look at this. Uh, their names are Yule and Catchell, and they published this as long ago as 1986. And uh, what they discovered, uh, they, they had here an almost perfect 
record of what went on. They had the guns. They could count the number of shells that were fired. They had the clothing of the perpetrator. They had the clothing of the gun owner. They had the car itself. Uh, they had the number of weapons that were stolen. All kinds of details that you normally have to rely on uh, other ways to reconstruct. So they developed a list of these and then they went and um, first of all examined the eyewitness reports to the police and then followed up three months later with eyewitness reports to, uh, to talk to the eyewitnesses. It's not normally something you can do because if a case is going to court, you just cannot interview eyewitnesses. But mm -hmm. this wasn't going to court, so they were able to. And they discovered that uh, the better... Uh, view you had. In other words, the closer you were to the events, the more likely you were to be accurate. But overall, between everybody, they had about 80% of the exact details correct. And uh, they tried to ask misleading questions by witnesses later, but they were corrected. So uh, this is an interesting baseline not that different from what other people have discovered. You can uh, confuse human memory and, and it has other biases. But uh, for something this dramatic, um, they remembered 80%. Now, if you are a glass half empty person, you think that's terrible. You say, wow, the human memory is gets 20% of it wrong. But even that 20% is consistent with what's going on. It's the 80% that I'm encouraged by, though. Uh, we remember things that accurately. Mm -hmm. Now, let's, let's go back to the time of Jesus. Uh, there were, at the, at the time, a lot of people heard Jesus. They saw what he did. And uh, some of these even became his disciples. Now, we've got to imagine the living conditions. Today, if, if I knock off work and I come home, it's not unlikely I will turn on the evening news on television and maybe watch something else or read a book or have some other kind of entertainment. In the villages of Galilee, where the Jesus movement got started, and even in Jerusalem, uh, there was no, uh, you know, they would light the fire They'd be working hard all day. They would come home around dusk. They would eat. And then they would sit around the fire and tell stories to each other. And what kind of stories would those who followed Jesus tell? Well, they would repeat stories about what Jesus did and what he said. And that would even be true in Jerusalem. They had other things that could entertain them. But the followers of Jesus would rehearse um, over and over what Jesus had done and said. Now, in this way... Uh, you form what's called a collective memory. Now, there's been a lot of studies on collective memories, and they are really intriguing things. They are very hard to get a handle on. But there is a communality of memory of people that have had a shared experience. Uh, for example, um, the people that have gone through legal training have all got a set of uh, precedence in their mind. So this is a, a formally acquired collective memory. Uh, you have people that have been working in the same workplace for some time, and I have been working for a number of years at Avondale, as you've just pointed out, and us old hands, we can sit around and we swap stories about uh, 
interesting events that happen from time to time. So I'm sure that the uh, disciples did this. And as well as that, uh, we have alongside of those uh, sort of informal collective memories, Jesus took time and effort to form a set of formal collective memories in his disciples. He chose 12. Then if we look at Luke, he uh, got 72 others and he sent them out before him. Now, uh, the disciples had been with Jesus and he sent them out to preach and teach. Now, if you're sending people out to preach and teach, you'd make sure that they knew the occasional parable that Jesus had been sharing and that they mm -hmm. uh, had things to share. So uh, we have people who uh, have been formally trained by Jesus. Now, here is an uh, it's <laughs> there's a lot of elements to this particular jigsaw, as you can see. I've been working oh, yeah. on this for a while. Um, but Jesus was called a rabbi, and mm. a rabbi means teacher. And if you ask how the rabbis taught, they taught by repeating things to their disciples and getting the disciples to repeat them back to them. So uh, the disciples, I'm sure, had this experience. And uh, we understand that uh, the names of two disciples are associated with two of our Gospels, that is Matthew and John. Um, and in Acts, we find the, in the early church that the early converts uh, devoted themselves to the teachings of, uh, of the disciples. And again, if they were teaching, what were they doing? Well, this would be a process of repeating a parable several times and then getting people to repeat back to them. It's, it's a it's a memorization process. It's not like learning a play where you've got a written record, but it's the kind of learning that uh, was common in the ancient world and was used in a specific way in the uh, social environment that Jesus and his first followers were found in, which was first century Palestine. Mm -hmm. So we have... We, we have this formal um, collection of stories and teachings of Jesus, which is passed on through the teaching. And as well as that, we've got the informal collective memory of, of the eyewitnesses, which would um, ensure that nothing too outlandish was added to the tradition. So mm -hmm. I see uh, that this tradition has, has taken uh, time to form that's been well rehearsed and well passed down. And this is the basis on which um, the Gospels were written at the later date. So mm. that, that is, in a nutshell, uh, my basic idea. Yeah, uh, I recognize some of the ideas there. You know, James Dunn, again, Jesus Remember, talked about how, you know, Jesus isn't going to send his disciples out in the old to the houses. So what does Jesus teach? Uh, some something or other about the kingdom of God or something. I I don't remember all the details. He's going to make sure they know what we're talking about. And yeah. when when we read the stories in the Gospels, I mean the events. Yeah, they happen one time. But if we hear a parable like, say, the Good Samaritan, we assume sadly that parable was told only one time, and Jesus yeah. never used it again. Where mm -hmm. I've done ministry several times. And if I go to a different church, what am I going to do? I'm going to use one of my favorite older sermons instead, but I think is really good. And 
Why should we think Jesus told parables just one time and then completely forget them? Or that the Sermon on the Mount was delivered one time and never said again? Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Mm -hmm. um, James Dunn's book is absolutely fabulous. He oh, has yeah. uh, been thinking of, of uh, the process of memory and oral transmission in the Gospels mm -hmm. um, for some years now, uh, going right back to his presidential address when he was president of uh, mm -hmm. SNTS. Mm -hmm. uh, I, well, let, let's say where he is very strong. Mm -hmm. uh, as you say, he, he is quite explicit that these were not just said once, they were repeated many times, and that what we have in the Gospels is another example of a story that has been repeated many times. Now, I guess some Christians might find this a little bit alarming because we're talking about memory processes mm -hmm. and each time a parable or a story is repeated, there might be small changes mm -hmm. in the uh, account. Um, but I, I think that is not something to be afraid of because if we think about how real life is, uh, if we, uh, well, let's just take an example. Let's say there was a car accident and the policeman came up and interviewed the drivers and the five witnesses. And they all <clears throat> told exactly the same story with absolutely no variation. Uh, the policeman wouldn't conclude that he had the truth. He, the policeman would conclude that these people have cooked up a story and that they have then decided to <laughs> share that story. No, uh, when humans remember things, uh, they remember different aspects of the things. And we've got uh, four Gospels that give us four different pictures of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So um, that, again, is, I think, part of the richness of the Gospel tradition that we have. Yeah, uh, I agree with that entirely. When I said what I said earlier, it wasn't at all disagree with us further backing or said, but you know, you talk about memory being 80% reliable in the case of a gun shop owner, but we have people all over time yep. who, like I say, but eyewitness testimony is very, very unreliable. I mean, court cases aren't decided on eyewitness testimony, and we've sent people to prison for eyewitness testimony that turned out to be false. I mean, is that the case? Is eyewitness testimony really just notoriously unreliable? Well, there is a absolutely huge literature on this, uh, and, and not unexpectedly, because this is very important to people's lives, that, that the uh, courts are able to establish whether somebody did or did not do something, mm -hmm. uh, especially if it's a capital crime like murder. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> yes. So the the rule that is established in a murder trial is uh, beyond reasonable doubt. So there is no possible way to be absolutely certain. He, well, I, I was talking to you about this um, murder or. Uh, self-defense uh, killing or whatever happened in uh, Burnaby, Canada. 
And uh, yes, we have photos. Yes, we have all kinds of information. But there's probably some details that escaped. So, uh, yeah, there's always going to be some doubt. And that is just the nature of our ability to remember. Um, as somebody I quote in my uh, book, Memory Jesus and the Synoptic Gospel, says, our memories are not a videotape, so mm -hmm. we just can't play them back and get exactly the same thing out of them. But this doesn't mean that because sometimes we forget things and sometimes we say, well, it was happened at this wedding anniversary and it happened at the one before, mm -hmm. um, it, it doesn't mean that our memories are totally unreliable. And when it comes to the Gospels, uh, I, I think we have enough evidence there to say the record we have of Jesus' doings and sayings is consistent mm -hmm. and is likely, highly likely, right? Highly likely mm -hmm. to be traced back to Jesus himself. Now, by saying highly likely, people would say, but Robert, do you want to say absolutely certainly? Well, unfortunately, that's not the way that historical evidence stacks up. But with the Gospels, we have a much wider range of evidence than we have for many ancient historical events and personages. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, we have enough there that we can base our understanding of Jesus on. Uh, these people uh, saw him, they reported what they saw, and we can, you, we can get a feeling for a living personality that had a very unique and astonishingly agile mind that was able to take concept complex ideas and express them in quite simple language. So um, I, I think all of this gives us confidence that we can rely on the Gospels. There is never going to be absolute certainty. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's also true in a court. So this is why, as well as eyewitnesses, they prefer some material evidence. Um, but yeah, you just have to make do with what is available. Hello, this is Andy Bannister, the director of the Solar Centre for Public Christianity, and I'm delighted to endorse and uh, recommend the Ministry of Deeper Waters Apologetics. I've been hugely impressed watching the work that Nick has done over the years, building up the website and the podcast, the quality of the guests that he gets onto there. And I love the way that uh, the ministry challenges and encourages both Christians and those who don't have a Christian faith to really think through the claims of the gospel. I'm also impressed by just how Christ-centered and Nick is and all that he does is his desire to see people encounter Jesus Christ and the life-transforming truth of the gospel. So uh, more strength to them. It's been a privilege to know Nick over the years, and I hope Deeper Waters goes from strength to strength. And if you haven't yet discovered it, check out the website deeperwatersapologetics.com for yourself. Now, Bart Ehrman, though, will say something kind of like this about how traditions play out. Well, you know, someone hears about Jesus, and they go, they tell their brother, who goes, who tells his friend, who goes and tells a neighborhood merchant, who goes and tells his sister, who goes and tells their son, who goes and tells his mother-in-law. I mean, on and on and on it goes. He says, and by the end, things are radically different, and that's why the Gospels are so different, because we've just got a long string of telephone game, and that's the contention that... I encounter many times when I meet skeptics of the gospel, as they say, it's like the telephone game. Is that totally off base? 
Uh, well, Bart Ehrman is a fascinating writer. He mm-hmm. is able to mm-hmm. express himself very clearly, mm-hmm. and he's just wonderful. I, mm-hmm. I like him because he appears in my footnotes quite often as somebody that I can argue against. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, let, there's a difference between something that is possible and, and something that is likely. Now, is it possible that some exaggeration was inserted into the gospel narratives. Um, I mean, we're talking about the formation of the earliest collective memories. Now, here is the, here is the, well, maybe, again, it depends whether you're a glass half full or a glass half empty person. If you're a glass half full person, the collective memory embodies uh, memories of Jesus that are absolutely 80% accurate, Mm -hmm. and the last 20% is consistent. So if you want to look at the, um, and and the trouble with collective memories is it does unfold some memory of things that did not happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, they've done careful experiments to induce such memories. And the participants are unable to distinguish between what really happened and what didn't happen. Mm. So that that is that is a disturbing fact and one has to acknowledge it. Uh, but you can't induce a memory of something that is outlandish. Now, I'll, I'll give you an example of an experiment affecting an individual memory. So what the experimenters did is they uh, took photographs of common scenes and one they called a kitchen scene and they labelled it for people, and then they got people to work in pairs. Now, what the participants in the survey didn't know is one of the pairs was a ring-in. These were people there to introduce false memories. So they took turns at remembering things that were in the photograph. And uh, it so happened that they were very careful to make sure there was not an electric toaster in the photograph. Mm-hmm. And about the third turn, the, uh, the ring-in said, I remember seeing an electric uh, toaster in there. Now, later on, when they tested the memory of the actual participant, many of them remembered that there was an electric toaster in that photograph. Now, that works because you can expect to find an electric toaster in a kitchen. Yeah. What nobody suggested was that they saw an elephant in the picture or mm. a giraffe in the picture mm. or something um, right. equally outlandish, right? So mm. you can get false memories that are consistent with what's in there, but you don't have the false memories that are totally inconsistent. So, yes, it is disturbing that uh, the earliest disciples would have incorporated some memories of Jesus that are probably consistent with what he did, but maybe not exactly what he did or said. Mm -hmm. But uh, for me, again, what we're looking at is the total picture of what the Gospels present uh, of Jesus. So, uh, yes, Was it like one of these long whispered conversations where there are 30 different people passing things down? Well, no, that's highly unlikely. Uh, We have, uh, well, again, at every turn, you've got a a assumption to make. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
if you read the Gospel of Matthew, you don't actually have anywhere that the Gospel writer says, here is me, Matthew, writing this. Uh, and the only reason we think of it as the Gospel of Matthew is the absolute earliest copies of the book that we have and earliest references to it mention, uh, it, well, in Greek, I'm sorry, it's katamatayam. So according to Matthew. So uh, we have tradition that is written by Matthew. We have the earliest evidence that is written by Matthew. And very few people would deny that, well, <laughs> In academics, you can always find exceptions, but most people would accept that it actually comes from the hand of the disciple Matthew mm. or a, a scribe that he was dictating to or, or some such mechanism. And John, likewise. Um, with Luke, Luke, uh, at the beginning of his gospel, says, well, look, I investigated these things carefully and I asked around. So who was he asking? He was asking people that had actually been there and listened to Jesus and seen what happened. So uh, if you were a, a good historian, you try and get good references. And that is, in fact, what Luke did. So there are the two, two of the um, four Gospels. John, as I say, um, doesn't call himself John, but it's quite clear from uh, the hints that he give us, gives us in the Gospels that the most likely um, person the beloved disciple is is the disciple john uh, in any event it was one of the disciples so we've got a pretty short line of tradition mm -hmm. and mark is said to be a, a a companion of peter so we have the short line of condition uh tradition we also have the uh presence of eyewitnesses we have uh, as i was saying there is jesus was remembered, he wouldn't just be remembered once. He didn't say things once. Uh, he said things a lot of times, and this was repeated and repeated and repeated. And so uh, this acts as a break upon the possibility of wild uh, imagining and invention of stories, I believe. So uh, I... I thank Bart Ehrman for his suggestion and his kind uh, willingness to allow me to respond to these ideas and put them in a footnote. But I think uh, it's a fairly unlikely uh, reconstruction of what might have happened. Yeah, I, 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 I find people who go that route don't really know much about oral tradition or anything of that sort. Something you did say, though, talking about the whole electric toaster thing brought to mind better. At the end of a year, the last interview I did in 2019 was with Craig Keener on his new book, Crystal Biography. And mm -hmm. he talks about memory tests. Where he says, one of the problems, sadly, with memory tests is they don't often try to test so much for accuracy. As even they try to point out where memory is faulty and try to bring out faultiness instead and say, oh, there you go, memory's not reliable. Yeah. What do you think That's about true. That? Mm -hmm. No, I, I, I agree. And it is nice to know where memory can let you down. Mm -hmm. um, and in my book, Memory, Jesus, and the Synoptic Gospels, I actually go through several of the uh, so-called sins of memory. There's a guy called Daniel Schachter mm -hmm. who has written a book called The Seven Sins of Memory. 
He's a, a well-recognised psychologist from a very prominent university. And uh, he, he looks at some of the uh, things that memory is good at. Uh, it is good at forgetting things, right? Now, mm -hmm. that, that you wouldn't think was a good quality. But if we had an, our memories, every uh, number plate of every car we'd ever driven or borrowed or hired and every phone number that we'd ever rung, uh, our memory would be quickly overwhelmed and you wouldn't be able to pick out the important things from the unimportant things. So uh, human memory uh, tends mm -hmm. to remember uh, the very important things. Now, I'm a teacher, so and I teach Greek, and I was joking with my class just the other week <laughs> about the fact that our memory is largely involuntary. So you can't tell your memory, look, I must learn these vocabulary words. You've got to find some way to repeat them often enough that the memory thinks this is important enough to notice. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, there, there are some things that are more important and there are some things that are less important in our lives. And our ability to forget is a good thing. And in fact, as you age, uh, this is one of the curious things. We tend to remember more of the good things than the bad things. So this actually has a very positive effect on us. Mm -hmm. So the fact that we forget some things is, is, is a, a feature, not a fault. Mm -hmm. um, another one that he talks about is hindsight bias. So... Uh, let's say there's an election and uh, we're all certain that the outcome would be one way and not another. Kind of like in 2016 and, here in America. Well, yes, yes, I was very intrigued by that. Uh, yeah, uh, quite an uh, unexpected outcome. Mm -hmm. uh, and But you find a couple of days later, a lot of people have toned down their previous expectations. Now, this actually works well in a social environment because once a decision, a collective decision has been made and we've all moved on, it's probably not a good thing to bring up all the bitterness and wrangling that went into that initial decision. Mm -hmm. So um, that also has a positive feature. Um, and, yeah, there, there's other things. Um, the... Social contagion of memory, that's another thing that he talks about. So our memories are not formed necessarily from just what we observe, but from what we gather happened from a wide variety of sources and those around us. So, uh, again, it works well when we're working with a group of people that uh, we all agree on a memory of, what, uh, of significant events. So this is what happened and this is what its meaning is. So all of these so-called faults of memory can actually be a feature of memory. Mm -hmm. Our challenges as modern people, though, is we've got these Gospels and we're asking ourselves, and yeah, I'm asking a really hard question here, aren't I? Uh, Jesus died and then raised from the dead. How much did that influence the memory of the disciples of events that happened earlier? Now, um, yeah, it's really hard to know, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But... On the other hand, we have Jesus teaching his parables to his disciples, and I'm not sure that um, 
that would change much after the resurrection. It would just mean that it was a much more important story, so they would repeat it more often, uh, but not necessarily the import of the story. Um, the, uh, the, the disciples were able to remember what Jesus said about his anticipated death, and so I guess that became more important afterwards. But, uh, yeah, I, I think... Uh, that, yeah, memory is not entirely arbitrary, though, right? Mm -hmm. So it has these qualities that mean that it works for us, that it's good for our well-being, that remember uh, particularly dangerous things that happen to us, which um, we, we tend to do, right? Mm -hmm. um, we remember the good things that happen to us. Uh, we work together in groups, and so we... Uh, are able to agree on a common narrative of past events. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that our memories are totally disparate from what actually happened. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's certainly something that uh, I think is important. So memory is uh, basically reliable. I'm not saying totally reliable. I'm saying basically reliable. And uh, we can also document this over the time periods we're talking about, I, I just remembered you mentioned in your introduction that the just the gap between the time of Jesus' ministry, his death and resurrection, and the writing down of the Gospels. Uh, we're not sure exactly how long that was, but it's not unlikely it was 30 to 40, 50 years. Mm -hmm. And we wonder how well people remember over that kind of time period. Well, first of all, uh, people were repeating the stories about Jesus, right? So oh, yeah. this is not something that, that they sat down, uh, when Matthew sat down to write his Gospels, he said, ah, oh, I'm trying to remember what Jesus said on that hillside in Galilee uh, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, he'd been telling the story over and over, so he would have a very strong um, memory to draw upon of that particular story. Mm-hmm. And uh, furthermore, we've done, uh, again, looking at um, the report of psychologists, uh, they have struggled to work out how to study long-term memory because uh, most memory studies take place in a lab and you try and get things done in an hour. So you give people a list of 20 words and then uh, interrupt them or distract them in some way and then ask them to repeat those words back to you. That can be done quite quickly. Mm -hmm. But how do you study memory that goes for extended periods of time? Well, there's been uh, two, uh, two experiments that I, uh, I thought uh, significant enough to report in my book. One uh, was a gentleman called Wagoner who looked at his own memory and every day he wrote down something that happened that day and uh, noted where and when and how and, and who was with me. Um, and, and then he asked uh, a significant emotional significance. And then he asked a question that would identify what it was. So uh, he, he notes that he was looking at a famous painting, that he did this about once a month, uh, that he, he was mildly impressed. And the question that he asked was, who was with me? So over a period of three to five years, he got back some of these clues that he had left himself. 
And he was able to answer his question, who was with me? Well, he named the two individuals, and that would mean that he actually had a real memory of it. So, yes, his memory followed the normal kind of forgetting curve, so he forgot some things, but he did remember others. Now, that was memory over five years. We're looking for 30 years. Uh, there's been few memory experiments that go that long, but one they did was in... Uh, I think it was Holland. Uh, every year in Holland, they do something uh, like we do here in Australia, which is we have a thing called Anzac Day. We remember significant uh, military events that happened at World War One in uh, this country. Mm -hmm. And I won't be. <laughs> Here's my memory sh showing itself a little faulty. It's some years since I wrote that book. Um, in this country, they celebrate the. Uh, ending of World War II, and as part of that celebration, they note all the details of when the country was invaded by the Germans, and uh, they show footage of it. Uh, they, they, yeah, the, everybody in the country gets reminded of this once a year. Mm -hmm. So the uh, psychologists, as part of a wider uh, experiment, put in a few questions about the invasion. So what time of day was it? What was the weather? How hot it was? And various <clears throat> other details like that. And uh, they, they were quite surprised because most people who hadn't been there but had heard about it each year got those kind of questions wrong. Oh, what day of the week was it, was one of the questions. Um, and most of those people that had lived through it got it right. So it is possible for individual humans to remember things accurately for the kind of period of time that we're talking about. You know, something that brought to mind that is, I think they did similar comparisons after 9-11, where people who yep. heard about things on the news and things that, they'd get some details wrong. But if you lost a loved one in that, or if you survived it yourself, you got the details right. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. The other thing that the other thing that they did there, um, I'm pretty sure that's mm. the one. Uh, there was some people that obviously got some pre-existing paperwork through an ethics committee. So within a day or so of this happening, they got people to write down what they remembered about where they first saw it. Mm -hmm. And then three to six, and then nine and twelve months later, they they followed it up. Now, uh, when they first wrote it down, people remembered that they had been in a lecture and had just gone out and heard people talking about it. But many of them later on said they'd first seen it on television. Mm -hmm. um, now, they, the explanation that was offered was yeah, may, they, they would have seen it on television over and over and over again. And what they are doing is they, uh, they've got a time slice here. So they, they're remembering something that happened, but they got the timing wrong. But, yeah, it was still something that happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and again, it, if you go through it, I mean, it does mean a lot more to you. Like for instance, if I asked you, do you remember July 24th, 2010? Odds are you probably don't have any real memories of that day. You could be an exception, but maybe you do. But yeah. maybe you what, do. What's, what's the significance for you? That was the day I got married. So, as you can imagine, <laughs> I remember a whole lot about that day 
for you and your part of the world, it was probably just another day. So, guess which one of us would, if researchers would ask who has more eyeball memory of that day, I'm pretty sure I'd probably win that contest. <laughs> yes, I think you would be quite correct. Mm-hmm. Now, something else you said is how, about how we study these memories, which left me wondering for my audience. When we talk about going to these tribes and these peoples that are still very much oral-based instead of written-based, how do we study the tradition there? Because we can't go, it's not easy to go and then study and come back 40 years later and ask the exact same questions. I mean, how do we study traditions there? Oh, okay. There's an interesting uh, account of um, a British colonial Africa. There was a certain country that they, uh, that was administered by the British and they found a lot of the uh, disputes that ended up in their courts related to uh, a an oral memory of how the different tribes were related. So you follow the different. Uh, you you have an ancestor, and he had five sons, say, mm. and each of these sons formed a tribe, and each of these sons had the following people, and so uh, according to this oral tradition. Uh, they named all of these. So mm-hmm. uh, thinking it's so important, the, the British actually wrote this down. Mm-hmm. Now, some 25, 30 years later, um, some of the uh, a similar case came up in court. And then they, uh, they were again confronted with the oral memories of this family tree. But instead of the original ancestor having five sons, he only had four sons. Uh, so <laughs> uh, the, the judge said, well, what's going on here, folks? And uh, the people concerned were totally flabbergasted because their memory was there's only four sons and how dare you tell us that there were five sons. And the judge would say, but look, we wrote it down 30 years ago. There were five sons. Uh, it turns out in that 30 years, a um, one of the tribes had disappeared for some reason, right? It had um, lost in war or, or been ravaged by some illness. Mm-hmm. So uh, the oral memory had changed to fit the current realities. And uh, that's just one extreme example of what uh, anthropologists have been uh, documenting. In, in, in an oral society... What gets remembered is what is useful. Um, so you you have the next generation only hears what's been shared with it by the previous generation, and then passes along what what they think is useful to the next generation. So oral memories do change, uh, and as well as that, uh, so that's that's one kind of study that is done in oral cultures. Uh, they do the kind of study that they do in the psychology labs, uh, testing people's short-term memory and how distractible it is. And they find, as I say, that oral cultures are pretty much that way. Uh, you get the occasional good story. Uh, one of the very standard books on memory, um, uh, he recounts a story of meeting a person on a train that uh, was obviously a person that had not got um, 
literate, you know, couldn't read or write, but he'd been sent to track down some uh, some cattle, and he had exact details of what that cattle was and had been, and all of that was in his memory, which impressed the uh, the British scholar. But he he didn't actually do any formal studies of it, so it's hard to know uh, how accurate that was. Yeah, I understand that, for instance, in the past, there were people that they would hear, uh, like they were called rhapsodes in some cases, people who would hear all this information and memorize it and tell it like they heard it. But one important detail is that when we think about that memorization, we think it has to be exact verbatim, but they didn't think that way. That is true. And in fact, um, a gentleman called Walter Ong uh, wrote a book about uh, what, what's the difference between oral and written cultures, and he he uh, notes that uh, it's the the verbatim memorization is only visible in cultures where you have a written text to compare it to. So, an actor will remember hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of words, thousands of words, in exactly the same order. And, uh, yeah, think nothing of it. That's that's verbatim memory. And in a Jewish culture, there is a group of people who have memorized large parts of rabbinic writings the same mm. way. Yeah. Uh, I, I, was, I was very impressed. Um, my uh, lecturer who was taking me through some of this rabbinic material when I was doing my PhD study, a gentleman called Bob Johnson, uh, was very intrigued by what he described as the pin men. So you would be able to identify a word in a particular part of the rabbinic literature and ask a one of these individuals, mm. what's the word that you would stick a pin through? If you put a pin through the paper, what word would be on the other side of the page? And they would be able to tell you. But all of these feats uh, rely on the fact that you've got a constant original that you compare your memory to. So mm-hmm. once you have a constant written thing, you can do verbatim memory. But verbatim memory um, did exist in oral cultures uh, in certain particular types of literature. Now, uh, it's particularly true of um, aphorisms, right? A stitch in time saves nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't yeah. know who taught me that, but I have remembered that word perfect from when I was taught, and it was probably passed down through many generations exactly word perfect. So uh, short aphorisms uh, are remembered verbatim. Mm-hmm. Uh, poetry can be remembered verbatim, but Walter Ong... Uh, and, and music is the other thing that uh, is remembered verbatim, right? So especially if you put mm-hmm. uh, words to songs. So uh, we can all sing uh, of our generation. I don't know whether you know this song. There is a house in New Orleans they call the rising sun. Never heard and, of it. And, uh, you, you heard of it? Oh, okay. Nope. Well, this, this is ruined, isn't it? But I can tell you the exact time that my memory stops, and I know that it goes da 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 da, but I don't know the exact words. Now, poetry is like that, right? It's mm-hmm. got rhythm, and especially if it's set to music, it's very memorable. Um, but Walter Ong said, well, if you actually study the music in oral cultures and the poetry in oral cultures, even that changes. So it's only the uh, short verbatim sayings that change. Now, uh, curiously enough, 
Um, you are mentioning a number of scholars, so I, mm-hmm. I will add to the list. There's a German scholar called Rainer Riesner, yeah. uh, who uh, who wrote a book called uh, Jesus aus Lehrer. I believe it's still untranslated into English. It really should be. Uh, and Rainer Riesner looks at the sayings of Jesus and discovers a very high percentage of them are these aphorisms. So these are things that would survive uh, near verbatim. Uh, the challenge, of course, is Jesus probably said them in Aramaic, where they survived nearly verbatim, but they were translated into Greek for our current Gospels. So mm. once they've been translated, they were probably passed on nearly verbatim as well. But, uh, yeah, there's that little hiccup. But, yeah, in oral cultures, the uh, it's the aphorism, the very short saying um, that is the... Uh, thing that can be passed along verbatim, but otherwise most things are not. We're nearing the halfway point, so I can go ahead and remind everyone that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. Everything we do here is supported by the work of listeners. Oh, I'm sorry, that's for later. Jeez, I'm getting ahead of myself here. You're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. We got Dr. Robert McIver here on the show. But if you're here next week, we're going to have Felicia Masonheimer on. She's doing a book called Stop Calling Me Beautiful. It's not what you think. It's about, it's for women Encourage. In people to teach women real theology, real doctrine, real scriptures, instead of just saying, oh, you're such a beautiful girl. So, you ladies out there, be listening next week, and for you men out there, yeah, be listening so you can learn how to better talk with your ladies, and maybe stop calling them beautiful all the time. No, always call them beautiful, but go beyond that. Now, let's get back to Dr. McIver and our studies. Um, I remember also reading... John Walton and Brent Sandy's book on the lost world of scripture, I think it is, and they've said that in many cases, actually, in a society, the oral tradition could be seen as more reliable than the written tradition, because actually the written tradition was much more subject to change. The oral tradition was usually much more fixed than that. Uh, Are you familiar with that, any? Um, I, I've, I've read evidence on that. In fact, it's kind of interesting, right up mm. into the second century. We have uh, cases of law that were decided on oral evidence contrary to written evidence. So mm. in modern courts, we would probably put priority on written evidence. Mm-hmm. But in the ancient world, they they would say oral oral memory is more reliable than written memory, which is kind of curious, don't you think? Yeah, it is. And that, it's one of the things that we really need to think about how foreign the thinking is to us, because we live in, 
I haven't got to read the book yet, but we live in what's referred to often as a uh, as a Gutenberg galaxy. That since now the written word is so easily accessible to all of us, we think everything is done via the written word, and it just isn't so. Well, that's that's certainly true of the ancient world. Now, this comes back to one of the questions you asked in the, your introduction, which is, uh, why did the disciples not write down the Gospels immediately? Well, mm. uh, they lived in an oral culture. It, it's not exactly an oral culture, right? It was a culture which knew written texts. So particularly uh, what we now consider to be the Hebrew Bible, was well-known, widely read in mm -hmm. public, and most of the people in that culture would know that. They would know that important things were communicated by letters. There were people who were described as scribes. Their official role was to write things down. So it's not possible to describe the time period of Jesus as, and the context of Jesus as a purely oral culture. But if we take the rabbis as a the Jewish rabbis as an example, um, they had a strong distinction in their mind between the written word, as I say, the Hebrew Bible, and the um, oral law. So uh, you couldn't actually. Well, I'm sure they did, right? They weren't supposed to copy, when they were writing down scripture, mm -hmm. they were supposed to copy it exactly. And when they were remembering oral law, mm -hmm. they were supposed to do this from memory alone. Now, um, <laughs> we have little clues that uh, there were uh, memory assistants written down so that they could uh, sometimes use those. Uh, students being students would use help. But um, that rabbis thought that it was very important. The only thing written down was scripture itself, The only th and the rest was transmitted by means of oral memory and oral argument. So when a rabbi, uh, a Jewish rabbi, was teaching his disciples, uh, it would be instruction that was entirely oral base. They would read scripture and then they would talk about its interpretation mm -hmm. and the, its interpretation was passed down in oral law. Now, uh, the first writing down of this oral law took place around 200 uh, and it was after quite a lot of uh, disruption in uh, Jewish life. The, um, the temple had been destroyed. Um, yeah, they're, they're, yeah. It's, it's a very rich and, and uh, very violent history. Mm -hmm. Now, in the uh, gospel times, uh, one wasn't, doesn't know, right? We, we have absolutely no evidence for this. But one imagines that by the time Matthew wrote down his gospel, uh, after all of this time, he was feeling an older man. So he would think that it would be helpful to write down or somebody else might think it's helpful to write down his memory of the oral tradition about Jesus. So we have a, uh, a start of the writing down of the traditions of Jesus uh, yeah, at about the time that the first generation, the last of the first generation was there to 
be able to contribute. The other aspect of writing things down in the ancient world, it's quite expensive. Mm-hmm. So to purchase the materials is one thing, but to actually have the leisure to laboriously uh, write, you've got to get your ink, you've got to get your your feather arranged, you've got to be able to afford the papyrus, and then you've got to laboriously write it out. Uh, it's, it's quite a slow process. So uh, to find Christians with this much spare time when most of them were fairly poor and that they... Uh, you know, we're living subsistence kind of lives. Mm-hmm. And, and with a desperate urgency to share the message of Jesus, it is not surprising that it took them that long to write it down. In fact, we're glad they did, that it didn't wait for the next generation because um, most of my arguments about the reliability of eyewitnesses would have to change into the re- arguments about the reliability of eyewitnesses handing their traditions along. So, yeah. You know, some of you were talking about very li- the reliability of long-term memory. Yep. Uh, I was thinking about an interesting analogy to that. Now, in my, in our marriage, I have to have an excellent memory. My wife, meanwhile, actually has short-term memory loss. But it it oh. amazes me what's actually stored in our long-term memories, because, for instance, I'm a classical gamer. I sit down and I play a game that was on my original Nintendo back 30 years ago, and I can still remember all the things I need to do pretty easily. Now, compare with, you, know, you say, well, you've got a good memory. Okay, well, compared to my wife, who has short-term memory loss, and one of her favorite game franchises, the Pokemon series, and she can all remember right. so many things about a Pokemon that just... it. it it, it, it's really amazing. So, I mean, I think that's kind of like what you're talking about, that these things are put in the long term and they, they're there so even if the memory gets damaged, they can still be recalled very easily. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah that is intriguing. Um, I, I read up quite a bit on this, although I, I wasn't able to squeeze much of it into the... Um, Oh, yeah. No, it, it, it did relate a little bit to my study of the memory of the disciples. Um, the humans have got different kinds of memories. So when we're talking about Jesus, uh, we're, we're talking about his teachings. That's largely a verbal memory. And then uh, we have memories of incidents. Um, people also learn memories about how to do functions like tying up your bootlaces or your shoelaces mm-hmm. uh, how uh, if you're a male and you shave regularly uh, most of your shaving is done thinking about something else because your your memory mm-hmm. just looks after it yeah. most of your driving uh, how to release the clutch and all of that uh, aspect of driving is uh, muscle memory and that enables you to concentrate on the higher level things uh, about what's going on and avoiding the uh, traffic and anticipating what drivers around you will do. Um, Yes, and so they actually um, studied patients that have um, various memory uh, disabilities caused by things like strokes or brain injuries. And there was uh, one unfortunate gentleman that had severe short-term memory loss He uh, was taken to a job every day um, and he just couldn't remember things that had happened the day before. 
but for some reason his muscle memory works. So he was able to get better at the job he was doing, even though he had to be shown it most days and had to be reintroduced to the people that he was meeting. Um, but, uh, yeah, so there's different aspects of that. Mm. And you're right, the, uh, the memories, once they are in long-term memory, uh, are the most resistant to, to going. So um, people who are gradually, uh, you know, the, it, it's, it's a horrible thing. I, uh, there's many unhappy things happen as you age, and some people gradually lose their memory. Uh, but the memory that survives is usually the uh, long-term memory, and you can remember stories and people uh, that belong to when you were, you know, 25 years old, even if you find it difficult to remember what happened at church last week. So, um, yeah, that's one of the features of human memory. But as I say, uh, with regard to gospel studies, uh, the thing about memory that we're talking about there is verbal memory. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a very specific uh, type of memory and uh, specific enough that they actually know in which parts of the brain that uh, are activated when you are accessing this memory and forming this memory. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. You know, something that we have to talk about also as well with some of these flashbulb memories would be one of the areas that skeptics talk about most with questioning the Gospels is the miracles of Jesus. Because some people look and say, well, you know, maybe you have an account like the theme of 5,000 and maybe what really happened is Jesus just encouraged everyone to share their lunch that day. And as the story developed and changed over time, it became a miracle. So, but how would memory studies relate to that? Well, okay, Um, it just depends how you use memory studies. If you're Mm -hmm. talking to me, Mm -hmm. uh, I I would um, say yes. First thing you've got to decide, uh, are miracles possible? And if you have decided that they are not, and many people do that on, on... I was almost going to say first principles, but it's not even that. They they decide this a priori before they go into the argument that uh, the only explanation that we can rely on is a natural explanation. Uh, there's a whole uh, bunch of biblical studies which is based on the historical critical method, and that's one of the assumptions that many people, not everybody, but many people using the historical critical method make, that we need to look for... Um, natural explanations for all the events that we find in Scripture. So Mm -hmm. if you have ruled out miracle before you begin, uh, you're going to have to find some other way to explain what happened uh, when Jesus multiplied the uh, five loaves and two fishes to feed the 5,000 people. Um, But if miracles happen, then that changes things. I I wrote an article, uh, which, which I kind of like now, um, and I called it the memory that would worry me. Uh, I base this on a book I was reading uh, by Alistair McGrath. I think it's called Doubt or it might be called Faith. But he pointed out that 
it's not just Christians that work on the basis of faith. Non-Christians have to as well. And so I started um, thinking about this, and then I decided, well, yes, there would be one miracle that would worry me. If Jesus rose from the dead, that changes everything. And if you look at the evidence for that to take place, I, I think there's good evidence that would convince you. So if you are convinced of that miracle... Uh, then other miracles in the Bible are not unexpected and not impossible. If you are convinced that no miracles are possible, uh, then that is huh, really, um, you're going to have to find some other explanation of what happened. So uh, there, it's kind of a dividing line between believers and non-believers. And it's a very hard one to cross with argument because it's your starting point. Now, there is something interesting I will share. There is a type of memory called a flashbulb memory. Now, um, a flashbulb memory is a memory of an important event that affects you emotionally, and you sort of have a flashbulb of it. You remember what you were feeling and where you were and who else was there. But it's only sort of an instant in, in, instance in time. Uh, people were just, uh, a couple of people, I think at Harvard, were talking about the death of JFK in the corridors. And uh, they could both remember what they were doing and where they were and what it felt like when they first heard about the memory of J uh, about JFK being shot. Now, I don't have a flashbulb memory of that event, but uh, mm -hmm. I, it's one of the very first datable memories I have. I do remember people talking about it and also about the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, as I say, they're some of my first datable memories. Uh, I remember the Challenger disaster. I, I remember um, that I heard about the Challenger disaster and I know exactly what it felt like and I've got a visual memory of an empty corridor at, uh, I, was, I was doing my PhD study at the time and I was earning a little bit of pocket money by teaching computers down at the local academy. And I remember being in the uh, corridor of that building. Mm. Now, uh, flashbulb memories, uh, they've been studied really extensively. Uh, they have discovered that they are not necessarily more reliable than other memories. You think they are because they're that more vivid, mm -hmm. but they are they're just memories that are, are very intense. Um, I, it was kind of fun because I don't know anybody else has actually asked the New Testament where there are flashbulb memories, and I eventually discovered that, no, there's not probably a flashbulb memory there, but there's a a few um, things which are described as personal event memories. So flashbulb memories are kind of like a personal event mm. memory. So the personal event memories uh, have things like a lot of emotional response and a lot of sensory image. And the ones that come closest in the Gospels, believe it or not, are the miracle accounts, particularly the uh, account of the boat uh, being on the lake of uh, Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee, mm -hmm. uh, which was almost swamped. So that seems to be a personal event memory. And uh, I, as I say, the miracles are, the, um, are some of the 
events in the Gospels that most correspond to this well-recognized type of human memory. And if I was in that boat, and if I watched Jesus raise somebody from the dead, or if I watched the lamb, lame stand up and walk, I'm pretty sure I would be impressed by that memory as well. Oh, and just it would another be day. That I would remember a long time. Oh, oh just another yes. day. <laughs> how, how, how are things around yeah. town, dear? Oh, nothing much. I saw a guy get raised from the dead. That's all. <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yes, the miracles. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you're prepared to accept miracles, mm-hmm. right, um, the miracles in the Bible are believable. If you are not prepared to accept miracles, then you are going to find, mm-hmm. you're going to need to find an explanation. Mm-hmm. And, again, it's very hard to have conversations with people where you have common ground because, I would say, look, I believe in the resurrection. Other miracles are possible. This looks likely to me. And they would say, well, I don't believe in any miracles at all. I think you are wrong. So uh, where do you go from that kind of impulse? It's very difficult to say. Wherever some people who might want some information on where to go, one possible place you could go is Craig Keener's book, Miracles, which we've interviewed him on this show about that book. You know, when you talk about yep. these events that kind of override everything because of the significance they have. I remember years ago when I attended a church back in Tennessee where I used to live, pastor came in one Sunday, and it was a regular Sunday hearing a sermon that we just spent, say, half an hour or so listening to. Five minutes after that sermon, I'm quite sure no one remembered a thing that was said because after the sermon, the pastor started making some announcements, and one minute that shocked everyone is he was announcing his retirement from okay. being a church minister. And at that point, I think everyone completely forgot the whole sermon beforehand. Uh, I'm guessing that's the kind mm-hmm. of thing you're talking about. Well, yes, I, I, it's the... Well, it just depends. I was thinking, would they have remembered part of the sermon? They'd like you to remember the sermon if it moved them emotionally. Yeah. So they would have emotional memory, memories of emotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what, what impresses your memory mm-hmm. are events out of the ordinary. So the, the things that, as I'm driving to work, I get in the car and I turn up at work, and sometimes it's very hard to reconstruct what happened between because this is something you do every day and it's pretty much my memory. Mm-hmm. So things that are distinctive, particularly if they're related to emotion so yeah. or, or life-changing events, some, somebody says something. Uh, it's always interesting, by the way, to hear my students. Uh, every uh, year we meet with the final year students uh, to say good luck and well done. And the students often sit around and say, uh, "What I this is what I remember. And uh, something that you just said as a throwaway line can actually uh, have great significance for a student, right? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'm trying to think of some good examples. I can think of some bad examples. But, yeah, so um, it has to have some salience to the student. Uh, it, it, it's where they're at. Well, I'll give you an example. Uh, I had a student arrive late for Greek class, three weeks late. And I apparently said to him, 
you're going to have to work very hard because it's very rare that people uh, will pass Greek from there. And apparently he worked very hard that semester just to prove me wrong about something that I couldn't remember saying. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so it, it's the uh, events. And, and I'm sure when Jesus turned up at the uh, tax collector's desk and said, uh, yeah, just leave everything there and come and follow me, or when he met the uh, fishermen and said, just follow me, and they they left their father and the boats and the nets and just walked off following Jesus, this would have been a life-changing moment that they would remember uh, with great accuracy, very strong emotional impact, uh, very strong uh, memories of what happened next. Uh, so that that's the sort of stories that we do find in the Gospels. So it is not surprising that many of those stories are there because they are highly memorable. Mm -hmm. I'd like to remind everyone at this point that you are listening to Deeper Waters podcast, and now we get to the point where I say everything we do is supported by listeners like you. Now, if you want to help us out, go to my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com, and there's a link that says, Help Support the Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. You click on that link, you get taken to the ministry of Risen Jesus instead. Have you gone to the right place? Yes, you have. Those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. You make your donation to, to, Risen, to us through Risen Jesus. Then you get in touch with me, or my wife, Allie, or Mike, or Debbie, and say, Hey, I made a donation, and I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We will get that donation. It will be tax-deductible. You can also purchase ebooks. Hopefully, by the time that this podcast comes out, the newest one, ten leaf titled "Dawkins and the Dark," will be out. My ebook response to outgrowing God from Richard Dawkins. There's also "Creed for the Ages: The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian," which I've written, and co-written "God and Natural Disasters," "Groundlets," which, by the way, this week is. Marks the time that it's been one year since I had that debate with Dan Barker at the University of North Georgia, Gainesville. Go on YouTube and check that out. Um, defining inerrancy, contextualizing inerrancy, Christian answers for this generation's questions. And uh, if you can't do any of this, and right now if you're listening, it could be because you're under quarantine, and please go on uh, iTunes and leave a pause review for a Deeper Wireless podcast and hey, you should have a whole lot of spare time to listen to podcasts now anyway. Now, Dr. McIver, do you have an organization or a charity you'd like to see people donate to? Well, yes, I do. But before I get there, let me just mention uh, the books that I've been talking about, okay. Memory, Jesus, and the Synoptic Gospels, which is available through Amazon.com. And one of my older books, uh, which is written in a slightly... Uh, happier, you know, less academic level, The Four Faces of Jesus. And the book Verbatim and Just Parables, that actually is based on the Greek text. So uh, if you are able to cope with that, uh, that is a highly, well, I think it's a, uh, a mm. very interesting book. Now, uh, the organisation that I might uh, wish to promote on the uh, space of donations is uh, I'm the director of a research centre called the Scripture... Um, Scripture, uh, Spirituality and Society Research Centre. 
uh, you can find a place to donate if you go and search on the web for Avondale University College. Uh, look for the tab on the right-hand side that says research, and one of the research centres is the Scripture, Spirituality and mm. Society Research Centre. So we'd be mm. very grateful for any help you mm. have. But uh, as you've mentioned, uh, the uh, the virus that is now a, a global pandemic, mm. uh, we would understand. Well, I, I do wish you well and, and health during this very challenging time. Thank you. Hi, this is Gary Habermas. I'm the Distinguished Research Professor of Apologetics and Philosophy at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. I teach full-time in the PhD program here. And I have been a guest on the program by Nick Peters on many occasions. And over the years, I've noticed how many excellent guests he gets. And I can tell you personally that Nick reads everything that comes his way. He's a great interviewer. He's got good insight and questions. And I highly recommend his program. Now, one of the things that is brought about problems of memories that the Gospels are different yeah, I'm, I'm sure you you probably might be familiar with my father-in-law's book, Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? But something that I've always used as an illustration of this is the whole thing about different audiences you can take a different approach to. For instance, if I have Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons come over and we have a good dialogue together, I'll usually call two people immediately and tell them what happened. One would be my own parents. And they're good Christian people, but they're definitely not scholars. So I'll go mm -hmm. and I'll give this kind of minimalist account of what happened. I'm not going to go over their heads or anything like that, just the basic facts. Now, I'll call my father-in-law after that, who's definitely a scholar in the field and knows the final points of apologetics, and we will have a very much more in-depth discussion of what happened. In this case, the same event is being relayed. The stories are a little bit different, though, depending on the audience that is being reached. Do you see that going on in the Gospels as well? Well, yes, I believe so. I uh, Another one of my books is called The Matthean Community in Early mm. Christianity, mm. and I think that uh, the Gospels are written... Uh, to meet the needs of the people that they were written amongst. So uh, the Gospel of Matthew uh, was written among a community that clearly was uh, pro mm -hmm. still processing the relationship between them and uh, wider Judaism and the function that law still had um, in their midst. Mm -hmm. uh, you can compare that with the Gospel of Luke, which is mm -hmm. uh, written for a slightly different audience, uh, and then the Gospel of John is a different uh, audience again. So um, yeah, and, and I, th I, that that's one one important aspect. And I think the other important aspect is uh, when you have different eyewitnesses remembering uh, people. So um, yeah, let's let's say two students missed one of my lectures. They. Mm -hmm. uh, well, a student missed one of my lectures. He asked two of his colleagues. He listens to one, and he says, I said this and this and this, and listens to another. And he said, well, no, the lecture was about this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's true. Um, different people perceive things differently. So we have 
Jesus is such an important uh, figure in, in Christianity that we have four different people's view mm-hmm. of what's important about Jesus. So uh, they are the four Gospels. They are written by uh, different eyewitnesses and based on different eyewitness accounts. And between them, they give us a competent, uh, comp- composite picture of Jesus. Uh, the book I, I recommended to you was called The Four Faces of Jesus. I, mm-hmm. I originally gave it the title The Four Dimensions of Jesus mm-hmm. and began with this illustration that these are just four different ways to look at Jesus. But for some reason, uh, the publisher uh, wanted to uh, change the title to The Four Faces of Jesus. And I was mm-hmm. happy enough with that. Mm-hmm. What role do you think, since you know Jesus having such an impact on these people, what role do you think bias would play in their memories? Would that cause them to change their memories in certain ways? Well, I, I, I'd spoken briefly about bias already. Uh, mm-hmm. The big event that we know would have had the most impact on the disciples is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Right. Um, now... There is a certain, so this is hindsight bias, right? Right. Hindsight bias. Uh, we, there's, there's been quite a deal of study on hindsight bias, mm-hmm. and uh, it is real. So mm-hmm. uh, people do ch- uh, change their memories of what they thought was a likely outcome of a certain mm-hmm. event. Uh, but my argument is, uh, yes, that is... Um, something that disciples would have had and wouldn't have been conscious about. But most of the materials that we find in the Gospels are not the kind of things that would have been influenced by hindsight bias. So the uh, prodigals, the parable of the prodigal son um, is an important parable and it would have been taught by Jesus to his disciples. Uh, but it's, it's not something that they would have changed dramatically in the light of the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Uh, what they would have done, I guess, is uh, said, well, look, I now look at this parable and I see the son is there. And so uh, when there's God the Father and God the Son, is there any interaction mm-hmm. there? Well, with that parable, they probably decided no. Uh, but the parable of the vineyard, where finally the owner sent his son that who got killed, uh, I'm don't doubt that people re-remembering that parable said, oh, that must have been about Jesus uh, being crucified. So, yeah, um, but the doesn't change the basic picture, though, does it? It doesn't change mm-hmm. the basic teachings of mm-hmm. Jesus. And I, I think it's something that uh, while happened um, is not something that uh, need concern us if we're trying to understand who Jesus was and said. You know, something that I was thinking about when you're talking about how hindsight bias could change their theological looking at matters is that in many ways the Gospels, remarkably, the synoptics at least, are not very theological in no, many ways. No, that's true. And if this was going on, we could expect that, say, in Luke, where we have most information with synoptics about what happens after the resurrection that we would have so many details of that sermon between the two disciples on Road of Emmaus, Jesus writing out, and he's spelling out Pauline theology and doctrine, all right there. We don't have that. If anything, we have very sparse details about 
what happened in the resurrection. It's nothing like, and because Jesus rose again, we can all live forever. Because Jesus rose again, we're forgiven. None of that is going on. Yeah, that's true. Hmm. No, no, I, I agree with you. Hmm. Um, it, it's one of the startling things about hmm. uh, the Gospels is that they uh, confine themselves largely to a narrative of the events Mm-hmm. With very little, uh, very little commentary on them. Mm-hmm. So if you if you are and and I give lectures like this, the theology of the cross in the Gospel of Matthew, um, and well, you've got more evidence than the Gospel of Luke, I guess. But uh, yeah, it's 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 uh, quite startling that this is largely an account of what happened, and uh, the. The stories are allowed to speak for themselves. The, there are different witnesses. We've got uh, the Roman soldiers commenting that Jesus is the Son of God, uh, not the narrator of the parable, mm-hmm. of the uh, events. Mm-hmm. Um, although it's somewhat different in John, that is certainly a theological reflection of uh, the meaning of Jesus' life and death and uh, subsequent events. But yeah, and the commentary that Luke gives is uh, found in the Gospel of Acts, and in that he is is quoting uh, Paul and the other uh, early preachers like Stephen, so and Peter. So yeah, it's uh, it is very self-restrained the Gospel accounts that we find. And I'm asking if they were altering things or memories. If we go with the traditional idea that Mark is. The testimony of Peter written down. Yeah. One can mm-hmm. imagine how he would have ever heard that thing right. if he was listening to Peter over and about, you know, that little minor detail where Jesus refers to Peter as Satan. Yeah. You really think Peter might have wanted to left that one out a bit. <laughs> yeah, although I'd have to check that. I think that's in the Gospel of Matthew, isn't it? Maybe. The, uh... That one, yeah. But certainly Peter didn't leave out all the unhappy, bad things that he did, like denying Jesus, which is the really uh, startling thing. Um, so there is a, as a certain remarkable honesty about the disciples and what Jesus did and said, especially if you compare the uh, literature that did survive from the time, right? Mm-hmm. So these are fairly unadorned uh, descriptions of what Jesus did, said, and what happened to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was just thinking I've been now yeah, apparently in Mark even it says get behind me, Satan just looked it up, so apparently oh, Peter... it is there. Okay, that's good to know. <laughs> apparently Peter was still repeating <laughs> that story. 60? Yeah. <laughs> now we could ask though, is there a point that we do think tradition can become unreliable sometimes because I know many of us who are Protestants, we look at traditions that come up later on, and, and we think, I'm not sure if this comes back to Jesus or not. And some of you might say, well, isn't that inconsistent if you believe or tradition is so reliable? I mean, is there a point that the memory does start being called into question? Well, the early church was fairly clear in its mind as to where the reliable memories were found. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are actually a number of uh, other Gospels and accounts of Jesus mm-hmm. that come from the ancient world. When the Nag we think Hamadi of the Gospel, Library, for instance. Well, the Gospel of Thomas, for example, yeah. yep. or the Acts of Peter. 
but the early church had no um, hesitation in saying, no, we don't think that is actually consistent with what we have remembered ourselves. So, mm. yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, you have to ask yourself, reading through Gospel of Thomas, mm. uh, that, that's an interesting case, isn't oh, it? Because yes. you read through the Gospel of Thomas and there is a version there of the parable of the soils where a sower goes out to sow and he sows some among the weeds and some on the path and then finally some on the good soil. There is a version of that. Mm-hmm. And it looks like a independently transmitted version of a saying of Jesus. And then there are other sayings there which are attributed to Jesus, which could come from Jesus. And you ask, well, what about that? And then there are some sayings of Jesus, which you think, well, I really don't think Jesus said that. There's a saying towards the end of the Gospel of Thomas that you must become, all mm-hmm. women must become men to be saved. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I read that out to my students and I say, do you think Jesus said that? And they said, well, no. And it isn't consistent with what else we know Jesus said and his attitude to women, especially as captured in and Luke, but also there in Matthew and Mark and John. So, uh, yeah, it, 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 Gospel of Thomas is a really, really intriguing document. Um, yeah, some of the other uh, Gospels uh, sound more like fantasy stories to me. Um, you know, the, uh, yeah, let's, let's not actually repeat any of them to give them credence. But, uh, yeah, you're, you're quite right. The part of the time, part of the thing I think is timing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the gospels that we have uh, can be traced back to the first generation, mm-hmm. and uh, in the first generation we have a number of checks and balances on what people can and cannot say actually happens the life of, in the life of Jesus. You when I encounter people who ask me about the gospels and say, hey, "What about all these other gospels that the church decided to just?" exclude from the canon. What about them? And I was just, first thing I usually ask them is, have you ever read them? Because if you go and read them, you'll usually pretty, find out pretty quickly why it is they weren't included in the canon. But at the same time, Yeah, that's, though, that's certainly... Yeah. The that same, is certainly true. Uh, I, <laughs> that's also something I often say uh, when, when, have you actually read these Gospels? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Now, something else that you've brought up in Jesus' memory, memory Jesus was synoptic Gospels is that some people look and say, well, geez, you know, the lifespans of people, they weren't as long. They weren't as long back then as they are today. And we're supposed to believe these eyewitnesses lived long enough to write about the accounts. How would that work? Yeah, I'm glad you asked me that question mm-hmm. because I, I think that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. And when I was writing this, I was unaware that anybody else had done any work on this. So uh, when you uh, when I first thought of this, I knew about the life expectancy of uh, people living in the Roman world. Mm-hmm. And uh, the... Uh, there's a gentleman that say, estimates that males live for 38.8 years and females for 34 years on average in the time of imperial Rome. Now, I thought, well, if we are looking at people who are adults when they become 
disciples of Jesus, uh, are they going to still be alive uh, if they have such short lifespans when the time of the Gospels were written 30 to 40 years later? Well, um, I discovered a thing called life tables. Now, mm -hmm. a life table is what you develop for a population so that of a hundred thousand babies that are born how many are alive at year one and how many are alive at year two and how many are alive at year 80. Mm -hmm. Now uh, they they can estimate what this looks like in the Roman period for the Roman soldiers so this isn't the common people but it's the best uh, evidence we've got uh, there's a, a court case mm -hmm. where they had to determine how long, how much money to give a widow of a Roman soldier that had been killed in, in battle. So a widow, uh, they had to estimate how long the Roman soldier would live and how much they should therefore give the widow uh, as a pension uh, to cover the fact of lost income. Mm -hmm. So from that, they were able to work out which is the appropriate life table uh, to use. And there is a, a life table from a reasonably modern period uh, from Mauritius between 1942 and 1946, when it actually came under uh, mm -hmm. British management. And they, they did a comprehensive um, census of the population, and they discovered that if you were born uh, in Mauritius in 1942, your average life expectancy was 33. But here's the thing. Um, it's the number of survivors. So in the first year, uh, 18,000 babies would die out of that first 100,000. That's in Mauritius. Mm -hmm. And in the, by age 10... Uh, you would have um, just over 30,000 of that cohort died. The interesting thing is you would still have 1,800 people who survived to 80. Now, there is a well-known historical person that did survive past the age of 80, and that's the Emperor Augustus. So mm. in the ancient world, there were some people who were just basically very healthy, and that they lived lucky lives. In other words, they were not caught up in war. They didn't starve to death in a famine. Uh, they survived plagues and earthquakes and all of the other uh, things that uh, you had to survive in the ancient world. So some people did live to that age. And using that life table, uh, and, and from that you can actually estimate uh, what the Roman period life table was, and I have that as an appendix in Memory Jesus and the Synoptic Gospel, and also in that chapter I've just published in that uh, book edited by Daryl Bock. And, uh, oh, do you remember the other guy's ed editors? It's K.O.S. Ed yeah, Ed Yeah, that's the gentleman. So I was able to use those numbers and just make estimates of what it would be uh, like for the eyewitnesses of Jesus. So uh, we actually know, uh, got a reasonable guess of the population of Capernaum mm. at the time that Jesus was there. 
and I took an arbitrary number. I said, well, those over 14 would probably remember Jesus and what he did and said. So I was able to get a reasonably accurate number of that. We have a good estimate of the population of Jerusalem. Uh, we can have an estimate. I can't call it a good estimate of how large it would have grown during the festivals that uh, had a lot of immigrants come to especially visit the holy places during that time period. Mm -hmm. And um, we have a, no, yeah, let's not call it a good estimate or even an estimate, but a vague estimate of the kind of crowds that Jesus spoke to. So you add these people together and then you look at how many survived and uh, yes, indeed, there would be some of the, the uh, eyewitnesses that would survive the time period that the Gospels were written and published. And among these people, we know Peter lived to um, quite a late age. He died in, uh, well, our best information is he died in Rome under Nero. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so there is some disciples that lived long lives. We, we have evidence from the early church that John lived to be a great age. Uh, so, yes, I, I think that there were a number of uh, eyewitnesses, uh, a reasonable number of eyewitnesses that were still alive at the time that the gospel was written down. Yeah, the book you were talking about is Jesus, Skepticism and the Problem of History. Yep. Which I, I recently read maybe a month or two ago. And as for the deaths of the apostles, if anyone's interested in that, we've also interviewed on the show Sean McDowell with his book, The Fate of the Apostles, about which ones we do have reliable information on and which ones we don't. Uh, and also th you know, the it, other guy it, that did some work in this is um, uh, Richard Balcom. His book on eyewitnesses. Mm. He he looks at the uh, the people mentioned in the uh, in the New Testament and uh, traces them mm -hmm. and says, well, look, there were eyewitnesses there, folks. You can't deny it. Yeah, yeah. And we we've interviewed him on that book. I think we've actually interviewed him on it twice, girls. He had one edition come out, and then we had a remake of it come out. So yeah, we've had him on here before. So if you're interested in that even more, go look and see. Now, if all this is going on, then it also builds up the idea that not only would the writers of the Gospels be around since not all of them were disciples, but there would still be people around who were hostile to the early church who could have read through the Gospels and said, no, 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 that, that, that did not happen. I, I'm thinking particularly, like, if Joseph of Arimathea had been a made-up figure, anyone at the time would have looked and said, no, sorry, that guy, he, you're making this stuff up. He's not real. Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> I, I also remember when we had Craig Evans, I was talking to him once, and he said that the way that these groups memorizing is that when, um, I think it was Helena, Constantine's mother was looking for where Jesus was crucified, she actually came and relied on some old tradition that was in that area. And now we go and look at where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was, and lo and behold, it looks like the tradition might be accurate because that could indeed be where Jesus was buried. Yes, I think the stronger one is the uh, Peter's mother-in-law's house in Capernaum. 
the mm. uh, you, you've got to think about what a village was like. It was a small mm -hmm. village with uh, less than 1,500 inhabitants. And uh, village memories go back a long, long way, right? So Helena is, what, mm -hmm. 300, so this is a <laughs> centuries later. Uh, and But she was able to go to a place which people had identified as the House of Peter. And uh, the archaeology suggests that even in the first century it was used as a house of worship. Now, uh, so I... One, one cannot cast away one's intelligence when one's thinking through this. Uh, yes, I think it's fairly likely that the villagers would have known uh, where Peter's mother-in-law lived. Uh, would they tell a complete stranger or would they try and sell them a bit of real estate that they were trying to get rid of? Uh, that is the uncertain thing. But I, I think it's fairly likely that we actually know the very place that Jesus spent his ministry at Capernaum. Uh, and that's where the, uh, the church was built over. And uh, to this day, you can visit there and go inside a more modern church that's been built mm -hmm. over it and look down through the floor and say, wow, here is, in fact, where Jesus and his disciples uh, were and spent some years. Yeah, I think it'd be, it'd be very prominent. Remember, of course, this would be, can't be like the town's claim to fame yeah. when Christians came through. Like, oh, you're a Christian? Well, check this place out. We've got the house of Peter's mother-in-law right here. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. As we wrap things up, what would you say if you encountered someone who was skeptical of the Gospels and just said, like, I've got problems with how they would memorize things, how they remember things. How can I be sure that they did remember them accurately? If you're talking to someone from a skeptical position, what would you say to them? Well, again, let me preface that by saying if you've already decided that there are no miracles uh, then there's parts of the Gospels that mm. you're not going to like. Um, but mm. if you have an open mind, I, I think that one can ask how reliable is human memory and how reliable is your memory, for example, of events of great significance in your life. And human memory is basically reliable. Mm. I think we have a a memory of what Jesus did and said that has been um, remembered by a large number of people that has been passed down as a, a well-defined tradition when Jesus was teaching first. It first goes right back to Jesus teaching his disciples and his disciples teaching other Christians and the fact that we know that there were people in the early church who were given the title uh, teacher so there is a controlled mm -hmm. oral tradition, as which is um, controlled as well by the fact that there were many eyewitnesses. So I, I think that if we look back on, on the Gospels, that we find there that we have a reliable memory of what Jesus did and said. Well, Dr. McIver, we've come to the end of our discussion today. I hope you have a very good memory of what all we talked about today. If my audience does want to know more about you and your workflow, do you have a blog, a website, 
you know, an email, a way people can get in touch with you and find out more? Uh, well, probably uh, through my books on Amazon, and also uh, you'll find my contact details if you go to, uh, if you search for Avondale University College on the World Wide Web. And do you have uh, any final thoughts you'd like to leave for the uh, Deeper Waters audience today? Well, I have to say this has been a... I'm reporting on a lifetime of study almost, uh, my academic life anyway, mm-hmm. and it, I have found it mm-hmm. a delight to discover something about the Gospels, which is fairly new. People have been studying the Gospels for a long time. Mm-hmm. But to ask yourself, like, are there any um, personal event memories in the Gospels? To ask yourself, uh, were there survivors the, amongst the eyewitnesses? Uh, that's been a lot of fun, and I and I hope that as you study the Gospels, that you will find new things, that you will find startling things, and most of all, that you will meet the person about whom they witness, Jesus Himself. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm bringing it up right now, and it looks like the the SBR resources version of Memory Jesus and Optic Gospels on Amazon right now. Hardcover is fifty four sixty eight and paperback is from 2326 to 2869 you might be able to find it on kindle or something somewhere i wasn't able to this time but dr mccarver i really want to thank you for taking your time to meet with us and i hope we'll see you back here again sometime excellent thank you it's been a pleasure and i'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to have felicia masonheimer on talking about her book stop calling me beautiful for now i'm nick peters i affirm the virgin birth And I am signing off.